Sky above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, The Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, The Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And a guy who's been on my radar for some time, um, Cat, who was uh, very much instrumental in certain regional pockets of music in our country for a long period of time, uh, have finally the spirits crossed, and uh, we have been able to connect uh, telephonically. And uh, without further ado, Sam Morrison, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Uh, thank you. How, how you doing, brother? I'm okay. Just uh, took my morning swim. They, I got, I'm, you know what? After I pick my girls up, I go do my afternoon swim. I've noticed better flexibility for myself. At 39, I mean, I've, I'm starting to feel a little bit old now. Um, uh-huh. But, I, you know, that's great. Um, can you talk about um, the lifelong learning of yourself as, as it relates to your own musical evolution? Like, what are you learning about yourself right now? Well, um I'm I'm kind of learning uh, how to focus on um, incorporating uh, a lot of the things you know I learned earlier in life, and and uh, performing and playing music and listening to music, and try to you know put it all together and um, and make it you know uh, make it advancements you know getting getting closer to the edge, kind of. I, I've been doing a lot of uh, electronic music for the last five years, and um, it's getting a chance to play with uh, Michael and, and Patrick um, doing the music of Miles kind of puts all that together. Can you talk, not even about this, because we're going to vet this, this this project pretty hard. I mean, I, I might have to take a uh, an overnight Amtrak up to Seattle or wherever the gig is going to be to just to come to hang, um, but... Wow. <laughs> yeah, we'll, Great. we'll see if that happens. But the thing is, that, uh, the, the, can you talk about something early in your career that happened that was sort of a blur that you now are looking to focus on and sort of sink in more, is, if I'm reading that correctly? Could you talk a little bit about one example, maybe? Um, with them or on my own? No, just your, I, yeah, just, just your own evolution. Oh, well, it came about, I think, with the uh, development of, um, you know, uh, music software on the, on the Macintosh, um, first Pro Tools and Logic, where I was able to kind of um, figure it out and, and start being able to uh, compose and perform electronic music, you know, along with playing saxophone. You know, so I was able to, like, um, use stuff I had learned, you know, um, over long period of years you know either playing with uh first started playing really with michael back in uh 74 and with patrick you know and then and then soon after that i was playing with miles and you know that was kind of a real edgy band that he had one of the most probably the most edgy band that he had you know with pete cozy playing uh guitar synth oh my god and, cozy um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would stand right next to him all the time, and I'd be watching. I even had a uh, an EMS synthy. That's what he used to use, you know, with, with the crazy oscillators in there. 
<laughs> and known for drifting. And, uh, you know, just, um, you know, I, I tried to get more into electronic uh, composition on my own back then, but um, it, it required a lot of equipment and patience. You know, so when when this stuff uh, became available, uh, you know, Logic and, and, and Pro Tools became available uh, um, 15 years ago, I guess, something like that. Um, you know, I got really got into it, and, and I was able to figure out in a couple of minutes how I could make compositions on it. And and after that, it was like, uh, so the next two albums I did uh, after that were... Uh, you know, all done in, um, in Pro Tools. Actually, three albums. I did one. Uh, the first one was in Pro Tools, and the next two were in Logic. And, and the next two I did all by myself, pretty much. Um, except I had, you know, a hand up with, with a few overdubs. And it was it was great, you know, because I live upstate New York. It's it's not easy to uh, get other people recording and all that, so I was able to do it on my own. And um, I, I started sending tracks to uh, Michael. And that's how we hooked up uh, all these years later. I wanted to read you this this passage from uh, Randy Brecker, uh, and then get your take on it. Um, he said, um, let's see here. Playing music is seen as a musician's gift to the world. We're supposed to hand out our music for free, and that's not in stride with what I was brought up to do. As a player, I don't think people have respect for how much time and work goes into practicing your instrument and trying to write music. It's not fun in that respect, and we want to be paid for it. There are parallel realities going on in pop music. You do have machines practically involved in almost every record you hear, even the stuff coming out of Nashville, although it seems that's where most of the musicians have settled. They're playing on the newer country scene, and I like to hear that. On the general pop music scene and urban scene, it's mostly just hip-hop machines with a rapper or one or two guys scratching. Even when you see a lot of guys on TV, they're kind of faking it. It's very sad for me. I like to see a band play. Now, I mean, he just was being honest. I mean, he clearly is not a wet blanket kind of cat. But, I mean, have machines gotten in the way of, of humanity? I realize that it's easier, it's more efficient, and maybe you can replicate the sounds. But ultimately, it's the heart. It's the, the individual heart of each cat that makes, it so, that makes music so spiritual. So I just kind of wanted you to riff on that. Well, if one person is doing it with, it with uh, using a machine, a computer, we'll say, um, it's, it's still their heart that's, that's involved. It would be like as if I go out and play a uh, sax solo in the street, okay? It's just me playing the saxophone, and it's, it's my being, you know, my essence that's coming out. But it's the same thing if, if you use it. To me, it is, because I program all the computer stuff, you know? I mean, uh, I come up with the lines, I find the sounds that I like, and, and, and in a sense, it's more, uh, it's more complete. It's like, it's like going, you know, like a classical composer, writing, writing out a, a piece for, the, for an orchestra, okay? It's not their um, freedom to um, communicate the, the music is not the same as, as somebody who's improvising in a you know, quintet or playing jazz on stage. You know, they they don't choose the actual notes. The notes are already written out for them, right? Right. So, um, so they have they have um, more freedom. But if you go back to the composer's, uh, you know, inspiration, what what he hears, okay, he's writing all the notes. So now instead of having an orchestra 
play them, which can be a very expensive proposition, especially when you're making, you know, you get a hit, you know, if somebody hits it on Spotify or something, you get point oh 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 one penny, you know? No, I, I mean, there's, there's yeah, no. Money to pay for that. Sure. And um, I, I think that's part in part what he's complaining about, that, that the, you know, you're not getting people getting all the music for free. I don't get any money off of, of, of putting out the uh, last two CDs. I got three CDs ago, I got some money. I sold some on CD Baby, and, you know, he gets, he gets some money. But lately, it's just been, um, you know, really, it's much more difficult to sell CDs because when you put it out on CD Baby, it's, it's, it's all listed for free all over the Internet. You know, whether, you, whether it's MP3, in some places it might be even uh, CD quality. You know, I'm not really positive about that. But in, in any case, you know, it's frustration over that for sure. Um, but but as far as the, uh, you know, mechanical, you know, um, using machines to, to make music, you know, if, if you can make them do what you want, then I think it's cool, you know, and I love electronic music. I like the sound. I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, uh, the idea of uh, like when you guys are going to be playing you Gleason and Shreve it's like I mean you guys are all you guys have huge ears you're going to be listening to each other you learned from in many ways you guys had brushes with the original masters of a lot of this music so um, there's a human component to it but um I mean, do you, the idea of a musician's gift to the world, I mean, where did that come from? I know like Michael, when you guys connected originally and he was making that self, that self, that album for Columbia, um, you know, I don't think it ever even got, came out. And I realize the business is not the great, it's a tough business. But how have we reached a point where in our society where, um, at least in this country, because you can't quantify music, you can't, it, it's not seen as a profession anymore, where it was when you first started coming up. I mean, cats like Dizzy and Miles, they were, they maybe weren't millionaires, but they were treated with royalty because they had skill and they also got compensated for it. And I just don't understand how we reached this point. Maybe you could take us through that evolution because like you said, you know, you've just been trying to, to swing it on CD baby and whatnot. Well, it just seems to have gone that way because everybody's capable of making music, uh, you know, in their computer, okay. You can re you can record live musicians in your computer. You can generate the music with uh, computer um, assisted, uh, you know, music generation programs. So so there's a lot more uh, vast quantities of of music coming out now f from people without having to go into a recording studio. You know, so um, it, it's just evolved a lot over the last twenty or so years. Um, to where it's more difficult to, you know, uh, there's a lot more to choose from for people, and, and it's more difficult to actually generate, um, you know, large sums of money for the independent musician because they're not being compensated for it. Um, as far as creating people like, um, you know, Miles, uh, Miles is, you know, is, is, is the biggest one. I'm sure that got, uh, as far as money goes in, in the jazz industry back then, he didn't always have it that easy either. Right. You know, there were periods of time where, you know, back, uh, I guess, I guess early 70s, you know, around uh, on the corner and things like that, where his music uh, wasn't being promoted as well, where he didn't generate that much income. And he might have, I don't know if he was make, actually making money doing gigs. 
you know. Right, no, absolutely. So I mean, things get, gradually get, changed. Yeah. Things have gradually changed to the point where they are now. Right. You know. I mean, do you, do you think that it's all cyclical? I mean, will it will it swing back and to the point of like where it's not just pay to play or play for the door or you know where's your I mean, like in a town like Tucson, there's just a treasure, tr- and there's there's also an issue with just supply and demand because you're you're cranking out musicians coming out of these prestigious schools all over the country and. They don't have any places to play. I mean, that's that's the other part. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's um and 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 also the audience that's being uh, mm-hmm. you know that's being generated uh, for this. Um, I, it doesn't feel to me like it's cyclical. It feels to me like it's a uh, you know it's it's a downward trend. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know age factors and and people are are changing. You know, I just saw some posting on on uh, Google something about. Millenniums are, are changing. Um, you know, put, putting companies out of business because they don't they don't want to do listen to this or do this anymore. They don't want to buy soap or they don't want to buy, you know, whatever. They don't want to go to Applebee's. <laughs> and the countries, you know, and companies are uh, are doing badly just because the attitudes have changed. And it, it's the same thing with music. You know, people what they listen to, you know, may be changing uh, to to a large. And that affects things as well. You know, the things don't remain static. Um, you know, but either way, once you once uh, once you're dedicated to doing music, use the best tools that you can find, and just keep making music. You don't. Ha- I don't have a choice. Absolutely. I, no. I, I kind of like. I kind of never did. That's what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, from the time I played, you know, after I played with Miles, you know, I, I was with did the thing with Michael, and then and then within a year I was playing playing um, with Miles, and from then on, I was kind of hooked. How did uh, you know, how did you uh, originally connect with Michael Shreve? Um, his brother Kevin and I went to uh, Columbia together. Uh, uh, we were freshmen the same year, and uh, we became best friends and. That was when Michael was at the height of uh, Santana. We used to we used to, um, used to go to Fillmore uh, East, like I don't know, once or twice a month. And, uh, we get in for free because Bill Graham was uh, Santana's manager. Absolutely. And uh, and you know we'd go see uh, saw Santana there. Of course, and that's when I met Michael the very first time. But um, I was just his brother's friend, <laughs> and he was a rock star. And uh, yeah, so so that was uh, that's how I got I met Michael. But when I went out to uh, I went moved to San Francisco after graduating at Columbia, and then we hooked up again. And I played him some music, and he liked it. And then uh, I just uh, ended up recording with him. Well, I mean, going back to Columbia, you got to talk to me about you and Kevin. Just Kevin was playing that wah pedal on his guitar too. I mean, you guys must have been doing some serious experimental stuff there. Can you break down? The musical enclave of Columbia. I'm a Long Island cat, so uh, you know. I just, I, I mean, at that, we didn't actually perform that much at Columbia. Kevin, um, Obviously, left, you know, this is more I like think, free form stuff. Yeah, we well, Kevin, Kevin took a leave of absence, I guess. So we both did at different points. <laughs> so we were at Columbia the first year together, and then later on, it was I don't know, maybe junior year or something like that. You know, and then he went back to California, and then. Uh, and then I joined, went out there after I graduated. So we're talking, you know, a few years. Um, but we, yeah, we did we did play, but we hooked up initially just playing in uh, the uh, lobby of John Jay uh, 
dormitory, uh, you know, at the piano. Oh, this is fantastic. John, the, 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 John, yeah. the John Upper West Side of Manhattan, a very uh, uh, beautiful area now. wasn't. It was kind of an interesting time. It must have been a very multi-ethnic area at that time. Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, I always used to go. I'd go hang out in the village all the time when I was... Uh, Freshman year, sophomore year. Yeah, because what, yeah, what I'm trying to get when, at this is a, this is about sonic expansion. Uh, you know, my show is about enlightenment through sonic expansion. And I mean, did, were you were, like, what was your bet? I mean, were you channeling Rasan Roland Kirk or, with the multiple reads? Uh, I, I before electro before even the early electronics, I can dig. You know, but I'm talking like before Macintoshes and you know Pro Tools came in. I mean, who were you? Oh yeah. I, mean, I want I want to know who yeah. who was stretching your ears out in the village that you were going to see. I saw, I saw uh, Coltrane live in '66 when I was about 14. Who was on? Who was in that I, band? I, I went. Who it was a workman? Uh, his his wife was in the band. Alice was oh, there. Oh man! I think I think Pharaoh uh, on stage. It was opened up. The opening set was was Ornette, and I wasn't that I wasn't as into Ornette then as I was to Train. Mm, um, mm, mm. But Ornette was great. Now I I mean since then I love I love Ornette. <laughs> You know, plus playing tenor, and uh, I was totally. I, I was. I bought a Love Supreme when it first came out when I was in like eighth grade or something. And uh, uh, you know, so I was. I, I had Miles' music. I, I learned. I learned about them first by listening to radio shows. You know, you, you, there were some jazz shows that played that music um, back. Uh, you know, you, you could barely get them on your radio but you could tune them in long enough to hear it where where where, where were you, the you 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 grew up in the city or where were you at no no i was long island where Not sure, long where island. oceanside oceanside oh, i'm a stony brook cat yeah that's great um the the <laughs> so you because like this cat ed beach i think he had like uh chur- ed sh- beach yes i listen i listened to ed beach was, was he one of the cats that uh was playing train in those cats because he had like that that riverside j- church or he plays some music out of a church um, I'm just yeah, he did. He did it out of uh, Ed Beach was out of Riverside, I think Riverside Church, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, I don't know that I got turned on to train through him. A lot of jazz. It took me a couple of years to build up. I mean, I started with uh, seventh grade. I started with like Benny Goodman, which I loved. Benny Goodman, you know, the, the quartet, oh, it was, the, small it was combo stuff. That came yeah, out. that's great. Yeah, you were Teddy Wilson, Cooper, and oh, uh, anyway. That was one that, that's probably the first jazz record I ever bought. And within like a year later, I was looking for Cannonball and and Train and Miles. I love Stan Getz. I love Stan Getz. And, uh, yeah, right. you know, it just um, kind of built up. And, uh, and when I got to, uh, by the time I got to college, uh, I, I remember buying uh, Bitches Brew. And Bitches Brew, I had trouble getting into and then uh, all of a sudden, uh, I'll go into how, but all of a sudden one day it hit me. Uh, sometime during, uh, I think, boy, that could have been sophomore year. I just wanted to, I, been, I mean, uh, no, this is interesting. I, I did not, uh, I'm producing a film documentary on Stan Getz. And um, did you get hip to, like, the stuff prior to, uh, you know, the Bossa stuff? I mean, I'm talking like, um, you said you were at the, you saw Train and, and, and Ornette in 66. But, like, Stan's work with uh, Scotty LaFaro from 61 is, like, I just wanted to know what pocket of gets if you saw him live. Because, I mean, that dude was so out of his mind. He, 
I mean, he was at the height of his career making millions of dollars and at the same time drinking 10 glasses of neat scotch and, and you know, and, and, and putting his foot through the door of the Irvington mansion where his family lived. At the, you know, insanity. And then he was on the stage the next night with a, with a walking boot on, you know, backing up, you know, playing next to uh, like Nina Simone. So what was your, I mean, did you just get off on Getz in the bossy years or was it even before that? Because that dude was. Amazing. Yeah, no, I think I don't, I don't think I knew much about the Those records were a little bit harder to get. You're damn I mean, right. I got they them are. later. Yeah, I, you're had, right. You're right. I had, uh, you know, I, I, I had uh, some, I have some 10 inch uh, records of stance, you know, that I got like maybe. 25 years ago Wait, but like, I, like I think the bebop, at that point like the bebop records like because yeah the, oh the early 50s the early 50s oh stuff. my god are you kidding you got 10 Still inches of those i i gotta look for them i don't know where they went i don't know if i was broke one day and i sold some i can't remember <laughs> but i, I love no dude records. i'm telling I, you, you know, steve, they've been re-released yeah no steve, they've been re-released yeah but i only collect vinyl but steve gad uh, last time I, i'd interviewed gad he said that in his car he's he can't stop listening to this drummerless quartet with uh, Herb Ellis, Ray Brown, Oscar Peterson, and Stan Getz from 53. I mean, it's like burning, burning. It's burning. You know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, stuff. yeah. You know, but but going back, so I, I just, this is so important because music is made for pacification today on, on, on the larger scale. It's not meant for burning or spiritualism. Even though you didn't necessarily get off on Ornette when you saw him live. Can you talk about... Yeah, yeah. Can you talk... I, can, I, you, I, yeah, can, you just talk can you just talk about break down the spiritual quality of seeing Ornette live and train live and ultimately how it impacted you as an individual because music in our culture had a very different significance at that time and I just find it to be incredibly important for peeps like you who went to see this kind of stuff how it had an absolutely like lifelong transcendent impact on you okay well Ornette You know, I I don't think I was like um, harmonically or ready for on it quite at that time yet. Now I was still like 14 years old. <laughs> I was 14 to 15. So great, you know, really, like, and they let and you on in the that, club. On that was really heavy. You know, I mean, I I I love on that. I saw him live maybe 20 years ago, uh, 25 years. No, yeah, no, seven. Must have been 2000. I saw him. So 17 years ago, when he was down in Lower Manhattan. Um, And I was really into it. And, and since that period, I listened to a lot of Ornette, and I love Ornette's music. It's just, it's just I love the album he did on tenor. It blows me away. Mm-hmm. It's great. And I, but I was just into tenor at, more at the time, and being a kid at developing my own you know, um, direction, that I was, I was more, and I was listening to Train all the time at that point. I, at that point, I don't think I was listening to Stan Guess that much. I was listening mostly to Train. Wow. And I, I had, I must have had 10 or 15 Train records, you know, on uh, on Impulse at that point. My and God. I had a couple of the earlier ones from Prestige, like uh, the re-release. I remember having a double album that was a re-release on Prestige of Train with, a, with kind of a medium, you know, 10-piece band maybe that I used to listen to all the time. So I was really into Train. And um, it was was great, but Train blew me away. I mean, like, Train, it was, I don't know, it was like, I, I felt like he was practically levitating on the stage. Like, he was up at the top, of, up by the ceiling, everybody else down at the bottom. And he was, like, spiritually, like, just blew me away. I don't know if he knew, you know, he only had, he, he died six months later. He I was, mean, he was he so, he was he really sick. Yeah, he, so he had, he had double drums at that time, right? He had, like, Rossi. Yeah, 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 he had, he had 
double drums. I can't remember double bass. Maybe. Oh. You know, it's just uh, it but was it was phenomenal, and he was doing all this spiritual, you know, modal stuff that just um, transcended, you know, the uh, the whole physical um, elements. You know, he, I, I, I was sitting pretty high up. I remember closing my eyes, and I felt like train was up, like at the top of the auditorium. <laughs> it was, but the, it was mind blowing how heavy it was. I mean, I never experienced music like that. The, the only thing that, you know, really, um, got me, uh, it blew me away. Like that was like the first time I, I joined miles on stage was standing next to him playing on stage with him and against off him off of what he was playing. Well, no, I mean, it, it, the idea is that I just want to get an idea here because Jimmy Cobb, this is going back to like the earlier, like 61, uh, and, you know, Train's music was being dubbed uh, angry message music by white journalists like myself, when in fact it was like, you know, uh, you know, a search for his own peace and his own enlightenment. But was it just that he'd play, they'd play, they'd open with some kind of recognizable standard, play the head, and then once they went off into improvisation, it would go on for 20 minutes? Because, you know, you go see... You know, you go see a jazz, whatever you think of that word jazz, you go see a jazz set now and it's like, you know, eight tunes, five minutes, you know, very formulaic, cut and dry. I mean, you don't see a lot of, and I'm just trying to get the idea of what was so, uh, the levitational quality was that it was, that, that a standard tune, they'd break up the time and then it would wind up going on for 25 minutes. Is that what was just so insane about it? Well, if, if he didn't play standard tunes at the point where I was seeing him, you know, he was playing his own uh, sure, music, sure, which sure. is, you know, more, more modal, like, like a Love Supreme or, or whatever. Um, but, um, you know, the things, if you're going back to 60 or 61, you're talking like uh, my favorite things, which, which I bought, uh, that, that influenced me a lot. But, you know, the, the thing that was cool about it is that they could... Um, they stated the melody, you know, they did their own interpretation of, of the song with the melody. McCoy playing the piano vamp that he was doing, you know, Absolutely. with the modal vamp over the beginning. And um, and then train train dropping out and letting the rhythm section have it, you know, before he comes in. For how um, long? For how long? You know, for a while. McCoy, McCoy, um, you know, they did that whole thing for a while. Um, my favorite things. And uh and that kind of, you know, that was very, it drew you in. It wasn't, it wasn't that avant-garde or anything, you know. Train had an appreciation of that, you know, of being able to, um, you know, to draw people into his music and, and make it listenable. He, he got more, you know, the further on he got, the more out that it, that it became. But he, but he took the listener with him, you know. Absolutely. I, I mean, that's what I felt, um, you know. So, and that took a few years, you know, because my favorite things... Um, I think it's sixty is sixty. Well, no, and and and, and, and I and I, I I just what I was getting at is like when you were getting his records, like the impulse stuff from the mid when you first when you saw him. Where was it? The Village Gate, by the way. Where did you see him? No, I saw him at the Village Theater, which later became Fillmore East. You saw him at the at, you you saw him at what would eventually become the Fillmore East, and it was called the Village. Yes. The, oh, that is so ridiculous. So you, there was a balcony. Yeah. I wasn't around. For, I wasn't even born till '78. So you're telling me that <laughs> you're, you're telling me that this had a this was I'd never been to the Fillmore East, but you were upstairs, and he was just levitating. How much of it though? Like, 
<laughs> this is so great because you get cats that go to shows and they they buy the album and then they go to they go to any it could be any kind of music and they go expecting to hear the exact same thing that's played on the record and was that trans yeah. was that similar to train because those uh, he did a lot of live impulse uh, stuff on impulse so i mean but in the studio sense did you find like those mid-60s train records you'd go and it was was it different or the same as it was on the record when you would see him live Oh, this was yeah. This was different. Um, oh. You know, that was the records were like a starting point. You know, right. for me listening, and this was like a whole. This was a phenomenal experience. There was like ten people on stage, and um, you know, with the harp and double drums. I can't remember if it was double drums and double bass. I'm serious. Um, no, I, I, I hung with it was like fifty years ago. You remember the the you remember that conga player, Big Black, right? He uh, he. He told me when I went to visit him that he got a chance to sit in with Train right after you saw him, right in that period of time. And he had his habit of dying of, I guess, liver cancer. He had, you know, liver disease or something like that. And he had the Bible. Yeah. He had the Bible with him, and uh, he was, you know, saying uh, he was reciting prayers out of the Bible. And there were double drums, double upright basses, you know, and just. What an, yeah, an emotion! Yeah, what I remember. It's an. I mean, how much of an impact did did? I mean, this is going to seem uh, simplistic, but did Train uh, was he fundamentally the most inspiring musician in in the history of modern music? Because I mean, he inspired. The more I look at it, the Grateful Dead were completely inspired by him. I believe Carlos Santana was. I mean, I did. I just take it from you when you step back and look at him. Uh, I don't want to leave anybody out because Mingus was amazing. And, you know, before him, it was, you know, and Dizzy. And, and these guys were incredible. Yeah, I listened to all I listened to all those guys. I mean, I love Mingus. I had, uh, I forget the name of the album I had, but I, I, I love listening to uh, Mingus. But Trent was the one that really, um, you know, seeing him live like that was, like I said, was uh, unbelievable, phenomenal, you know. Um, whether he influenced me, he influenced me the most in early um saxophone playing but later on um you know when i had when i played with miles um miles uh, influenced me a lot in saxophone playing too really um yeah i started you know the oh. way miles put together his lines and um and the things that he used to do um you know kind of i i really love that um and so it was kind of a lot different than train and so, like, you know, getting back to what I'm doing with uh, Michael and Patrick, sure. um, it's, uh, you know, I've, I kind of approach it more from um, Miles' perspective as an instrumentalist playing over the, um, over the uh, you know, the soundtrack that they generate, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, the train, the train thing at this point in, in my playing. That's uh, you know I've done a few of these things. I play with Michael Henderson with the uh, Electric Miles Band. We've done a, we've done a few things. I don't think he's doing that right now anymore. But we did a, um, five or six years ago. We were doing it a, a bunch. Wait wait and, wait wait. wait. Um, well, Michael Michael. Wait, I'm sorry. I, this is how naive. Uh, wait, Michael Henderson is still cooking the groove these days. Michael Henderson, right now he's doing more of an R&B stuff. He's booking a lot of concerts with the R&B because he was a singer. He had a bunch of hits. Well, because, got, yeah, because when, I, when, when Michael Shreve and I first connected, uh, what kind of locked us in in our first interview was that I, 
Um, I had this mercurial Pacific Standard Oil record that was like, you know, um, highlighting all these. It was just wonderfully done. Um, you know, they had everybody from Francisco. They had different sides, you know, but it was highlighting Afro-Cuban percussion, Francisco Aguabella, uh, Quasi Badu from Africa. And then there was this one side three <laughs> was Michael Shreve. This was 73, like you said, the heart of Santana. And it was a mixture of, of talk and then um, jam and then music. So Michael was in his basement and he was talking like one of his Latin brothers. At, at the time, he was trying to sound like, you know, one of the, Car the Carabello, whoever he's hanging out with. And it was like, yeah. It, yeah. and the, the band that, that was that was that was grooving was uh it was michael henderson kevin shreve and and michael shreve i have this on vinyl it's one of the and so i played it for him and he was laughing hysterically because you don't you can't find this thing you know it's not been re-released but so it was so open because uh henderson just was just his notes were so round and his placement was so good but that's when you yeah that's so you, you you were you involved with that band? I mean, did you play with Hen Henderson and those cats when you were out to San Francisco at that point? Yeah, that, well, Michael's uh, album for uh, Columbia, uh, Michael Henderson played bass on. And, and that I, album, that that's album, how I hooked up with Michael Henderson. Okay, so so I just want to be clear, Kevin, Kevin went went out to San Francisco. You saw Mike Michael play with Santana at the Fillmore East. He was a rock star. Then you got. Then at that point, it was like, "Hey, let's go out. San Francisco's happening. Let's go out there." How did that transpire? Uh, yeah. I, um, after uh, graduating, I wanted to go out back out to the West Coast. I had been out there several times. I, oh. I, that's where I started developing. Uh, you know, playing professionally. I played. I used to play in black clubs and uh, one. I guess I took a half a year off. Hold on, hold on. Yeah, Which in, in Oakland or San Francisco? Um, both. I played with uh, bands from Oakland, but we played down. We go down the peninsula. We played. In, I played in East Palo Alto a lot. Well, you played at the, Pop and, the uh, Poppycock, or wh where were you playing? No, Club Club Four is the place we played at. You were playing so was, in what years was that? This is unbelievable. Seventy one. This is seventy seventy one. I played with a bunch of guys there, Who and I think I played yeah. with. Bass player. I think I played with T-Bone Walker down there too. A couple of late after hours gigs, I got called. Oh, for. that's unbelievable! You know you played. Yeah, you didn't it, think you. you so wait, you you were playing. Uh, Club Four was called. Is that what you said? Yeah, Club Four. And then were you going into the? Well, I mean, it was a few years afterward. There, there, there was like the Hate Flats. There was like really weird, crazy electronic music going on. Like a very beginnings of it. But I just you got to break this down. Who were you playing with also out there at that time? I mean, that's unbelievable. I forget his name. His, his, his name is Alvin. He's a blues guy. And I, I did that uh, summer of freshman year when I first went out to California. I played with him. Um, I stayed at Kevin's house. And the last month I was there, I played um, with Alvin. And then I went back a year later and played with him again, a slightly different band. Uh, and I was out there for a whole semester. I took a semester off. And then <laughs> and then I went out again after I graduated. And then uh, this, after, this is the time I was playing, uh, you know, when I did the recording with Michael. This would be later, 74. And at that point, I was playing with a lot of Latin bands because I hooked up with Michael. And then I was playing um, with, with Ch Chipito from Santana. Absolutely. I played in his band. Uh, wow. And hooked up with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Latin bands. 
I was then I, to that time I was playing less with the black bands and playing more with the Latin bands. Wow. And then I went back to New York in '75 because there wasn't that much wasn't enough to keep me going in San Francisco, and that's when I joined uh, got it, got in with Miles. When uh, can you talk about that actual session uh, with with Michael? Like, I mean, was it all done live? Everybody there. Uh, I mean, again, that has not seen the light of day, and it's got it's got some incredible. He sent me some tracks that I've listened to, and uh, I just wanted you to take us through that. You were staying at Kevin's house, and he's like, "Hey, my you know my brother's gonna he cut a solo album. You wanna?" Okay, seventy seventy four. That was seventy four. I was I had an apartment in uh, Upper Haight Ashbury. Nice. And and I was um, and I you know um, I was going to uh, the studio. We recorded it. Some of it was recorded at Patrick's studio, Different Fur, and right. some of it was recorded at CBS. Um, and some of you know a lot of it was overdubbed. Uh, so, you know, we had like, it'll be two, three guys. I was in the studio with Michael Henderson at that point, you know, but, uh, Michael was doing vocals. Those were overdubs, you know, they, they do the rhythm tracks and then you go in and do the vocals. And so, you know, it, it was, that was the way stuff was recorded back then, especially at CBS. You know, they, they would work on the drum sound for a while and they spend a whole day getting the drum sound together, you know, and then they go back and start recording, uh, tracks, uh, you know, bass and drums. So, um, so, I mean, like, uh, that, was that the first time that, I mean, had Michael, he hadn't, he hadn't left Santana at that point. He was still with Santana, and he just was going out and making Yeah, his- yeah, I, I, yeah, I think he was, because I, I, I hung out with Carlos there, too, um, some, at some point. I remember sitting with Carlos outside a SIR uh, one day, and he, he was playing Miles music for me and some other stuff, and had incense in the car. So I think Michael is still hooked up with uh, Santana. <laughs> yeah, no, because I think that that epic live show from Japan happened like in '75 or a year later or something like yeah. that. Yeah. But you were. Yeah. But the idea was that, I mean, you basically Kevin was uh, was was the one that helped you get into this. I don't, I'm just trying to figure out how Michael would have faith if he unless he knew that you you could you really could play. Uh, I mean th- that you could get into the studio and play on that record. How did that? How did he decide that you were going to... Um, well, we hung out a little bit. Uh, Kevin took me out. I remember g- going up to his house in Orinda and jamming me and Michael, just sax and drums. Oh, man. Where are the tapes of that? Uh, Where are the tapes of that? Yeah. There's no tape. <laughs> uh, this, is, this had to be 74. Right. And... Um, uh, oh, man. So I had played with him a little bit. I don't remember all the... I hadn't known him on and off for a few years. I even when I when I was there in seventy one or seventy two, I remember jamming with him at the house up in Mill Valley. He, I, I can remember a jam session at, in Mill Valley, seriously, with uh, <laughs> with Dave Garibaldi oh and my. Michael. Uh, double drums, and, double drums. No, I don't think they had. I think it was only one set, but I'm not sure. But um, Kevin and I were there, and then the. The horn section from Tower of Power was there. Mick, Mick Gillette, all those <laughs> Mick Gillette and Doc Cook. Yeah, that's un. Okay, so that's unbelievable, mind blowing. And 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 the Pointer Sisters. Oh my God! Well, speak, so and the, all three Pointer Sisters and Elvin Bishop. Those. That's all. I, that's what I remember right now. And that was at because um, Michael had like a mansion on top of a big overlook into the uh, on the mount. Was that was that when he was living on the hill somewhere? I, I or was that in Mill Valley? It was. It was a hill. It was a Mill Valley. I don't 
but I remember it was kind of a Mill Valley house, big house. So really, you know, so really, the 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 the, uh, the the seed was planted in seventy one, seventy two, and then you came back and started playing just horn drums. Yeah. you played horn drums, and yeah, like, I've been thinking of. Yeah, I've been thinking about this lately. I, I mean, I came back and went back and forth between San Francisco and New York, between going to school at Columbia and going taking time off and going back out to California and playing gigs. You know, getting more you know professional experience. Were you taking? You, you were, know, you drive, were you driving? Were you driving or taking planes? I mean, that's not. I mean, this is. Yeah, oh. what, a couple times I drove. A couple times I took planes. I dig. I dig. I dig. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, so this is phenomenal. So, so you would you. Um. Th- so, and even though you you were out, you you really can say definitively by seventy five there wasn't even there was not enough uh, enough for you uh, going on. Had you had you even crossed paths with Miles when you decided to move back to New York, or that was just a run in once you got back there? No, what happened was. Uh... You know, I just felt like going back to New York because I wanted to, um, I just felt like it was calling me or something. And there wasn't that much um, gigs, you know, steady steady work in San Francisco. Uh, I mean, I had some good gigs and I was playing around, but I wanted to play more. Sure. And, you know, I knew there was a whole law scene you could play in New York. And, you know, and, and the, you know, top quality guys, jazz guys were in New York. And so I, uh, and Michael Henderson and I had become friends. And he had told me he, you know, he was going to get me into uh, Miles Banson. So, <laughs> so I went back to New York, and I was there like two months, and, and uh, I had a day gig. Uh, my my uh, mother's, my actually my aunt got me a day gig filing papers at the Board of Ed in Brooklyn. Nice, oh, that's great. <laughs> I was working, at, and I, you know, I'd go out and play music at night, but I really hadn't been playing much that last few weeks, and then. Uh, um, Michael Henderson called my house. I wasn't home, and uh, told me to come up to Boston that night to play with Miles. And so I got a flight up there and and uh, and played with him and copped the gig. Was it, was it Paul's was Mall? It, uh, where 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 was the gig? Yeah, yeah, that was Paul's Mall. Oh my God! And so that That's band, the one, it, yeah. It, yeah, that was essentially it's online. It's online. The actual record, the actual recordings of that night are online. Yeah, I, I have them of that night and the, the, the that uh, three or four days I was up there. Okay, they're, so they're, so you know, most, you most, you know, being a Gen Xer and then having millennials underneath, most of them would be. I mean, can you just talk about how Miles? I remember when Dejanet told me. Uh, you know, he was talking about Train uh, playing late in Chicago. This is going back probably like early 60s or something like that. And he just said, that, you know, at a certain point, uh, you know, Jack had a good reputation around town. And and, um, and uh, Elvin, for some reason, didn't show up for the last set. <laughs> and, um, uh-huh. and, and, and so they said, yeah, let's give this guy a chance. And so uh, Jack walked up on stage and Coltrane didn't say anything to him. He just nodded at him and then they went to work and it was this it was, i mean here we are you know so that was a more of a jam session but this is like a like michael obviously gave henderson gave you good 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 uh feedback to miles but can you just talk about how miles made you feel as comfortable as possible or what he did in a non-verbal way to be to, 
to exude leadership on the bandstand because we're in such a verbose time. Everybody hangs on words. Everybody's lawyering up now. And the fact is that these, I mean, like McLaughlin, I mean, I've done a few interviews. He's like, dude, Miles was a Zen master. He's a Zen master the way he did certain things. So, I mean, you're here you are filing papers. My, Henderson gives you the call. You fly up to Boston, and you're just supposed to, maybe you heard his records, that he, the more recent stuff. How, do, how did he assimilate you into that group so effectively, and, and how did he make you feel comfortable? Well, I went back uh, stage before I played. And he goes, uh, you know, are you just white or can you play? What did he say? <laughs> what, did he, voice. what did he say? Are you just white? Are you just white or can you play? <laughs> but I can, I can hear him saying, are you just white or can you play? Right, sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. You're like, I can play, dude. <laughs> and I, I said, you decide, you know. Right. And and then uh, wow, you threw it back. You, and then you I threw it back to him. That, yeah. Oh man. And and he just like you know he dropped down and just like, you know, pointed to me to come over to the mic you know and play, and so I and he let me play for like for a long time like ten minutes maybe. This is in sound check or before the show or what? 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 No, no. This is this is in the middle. Of, Sunny Fortune played the first set. I showed up. I played the second set. I didn't get the call until like, I don't know, three in the afternoon. Wait, Sunny, I got a message. So, I wasn't so, home. Sunny Fortune played the first set. You fly into Logan, take a cab over with your horn, and then exactly. and then in the in the set break he said, You're, "Are you white or can you play?" Is that and then and then when you said you decide, and then he, then at the first tune he just said, "Go up and blow." Yeah, he played with Mike and they let me play like ten minutes, and then uh, <laughs> and then I played the whole set, and then uh, huh. so, you know Sonny didn't play that set, and uh, and then uh, I came. I came back in and he said, you know, you play your ass off. Something like that. You play your white ass off. <laughs> and then, and then, and then the devotees asked him, well, who, who should be set up for the third set? Who she set up for? They said, set up for the white boy. Why? Wait, I mean, I'm so, 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 I mean, this was, and so basically he, this was like a, what's the philosophy there? I mean, why not have you and Sonny up there? Was it like, I mean, he was like basically trying to, this is fascinating. Sonny was just sitting at the table after playing a set, and then all of a sudden, uh, Sam Morrison's blowing his butt, white butt off, and it, 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 that's how it worked. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what. I have no idea what was going on between the two of them. You oh know? Oh my god, this is insane. That's, like, you know, I'm like this. I was like 22 years old. Oh, I, this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. Yeah, it's like it's certainly an unbelievable happening you know if you could if you had asked me earlier in the day while i was filing papers <laughs> at the board event you could be anyplace else other than here you could do anything in the whole world other than be here right now what would you want i said i'd be playing with miles davis right. that's what i would have said and then to have that happen later uh, that night was incredible and hmm. um you know he got me a a, a suite like a huge room at the, like a, a hotel i have I don't know if it was a Hilton. I'm not sure what it was in uh yeah, I dig. It was on Boston, a Newberry. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is ridiculous. Um, and then, so the third set, and you're still just blowing your white butt off. And then after that, he's like, uh, stick around tomorrow. I mean, did you have a, were you, were you locked in after that? Yeah, after that, I was hired, you know. I mean, after the second set, I was hired. That's what it seemed like. Um, mm -hmm. That was it. 
Yeah, but so uh, basically, the, the second set was a tryout, and if you would, and if you, yeah, yeah, I, I dig. And so then the third set, you were fully on board. And did did Sonny Fortune ever enter the picture again, or was he gone? He left, I think, between the second and the third set. I think. But what, yeah, what, what I'm getting it, at is um, when you when you continued on, was he out of the band at that point? Yeah. Wow, you took his. Yeah, I think I think I think he, he split um, after the second set when Miles had to set up for me. Wow. I think that's what wow. I, you know, it's, it's it's a little vague in my memory. But, well, I mean, yeah. yeah Sonny, like Sonny was, Sonny was, I mean, it's interesting. It's almost like, because uh, Sonny was just beginning to branch off and start to do his own albums as a leader. He did a bunch of stuff on Strata East. And he's, I've interviewed Sonny. He's a bad, yeah. he's a badass, dude. He's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Sam Morrison just kicking ass up there. So then, here's the question, though. I've always been flummoxed by this, because I, I was a late bloomer when it came to music. And, I you know, I play a little... A little bit modified trap sets and, you know, just, you know, I'm not really a, a musician by any stretch, uh, but I love talking to the cats and, and, and getting enlightened. And I look at Miles and I don't necessarily, it's not like my, you know, my first call stuff. I mean, you talked about Bitches Brew, having, you having a hard time getting your ear around that. But even the, the, the On the Corner or Big Fun or I don't know, I, I, you know, all those early 70s leading up to like 75 and then he just kind of just dropped out like he just left like he just left the scene and i'm just trying to figure out if that did he leave the scene he just stopped he he didn't cut albums for a, for a minute and i'm just trying to figure out why you why did he did he actually leave because when i rest in peace i've done two interviews with coriel i've been seeing the miles documentary but the documentary was about Larry Coriel and Miles working with Coriel in '78. But I wanted. To... Yeah, I didn't. Um, I didn't, haven't seen that. You know, I, I saw the uh, Don Cheadle movie, but I didn't see the uh, Larry. Oh, no, no, yet. no, the the Cheadle film. That that's the one. That 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 movie's about Coriel. That's about that focuses on Coriel. 1978. Oh. Um. Yeah, I don't really know much about the, uh, I think it was 77 maybe. But we were in the studio in 76, you know, after he had already retired. And he um, he recorded uh, one of my songs, but he uh, he fell down in the bathroom uh, wow. before we went to the studio and cut his arm really bad, and he couldn't play trumpet for a while and so we went in and recorded anyway and he did one of my songs but because uh, he actually did the same song that, that Michael Shreve did on his record two years ago this is another time it didn't come out again so that's what it was unfortunate to me kind of because well, otherwise I would have had a you know an out, a, a cut you would have you gotten you, you would have gotten uh, uh, writing credits on that, right? I mean, that's the the, the yeah, I would have gotten royalties. So wait, I want to be very clear though. He when when you showed up at the at the Paul's Mall and 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 uh, and, and got the gig, why eventually? Why? How did you find out that Miles was retiring, and why did he reti- quote unquote retire? No, uh, when he, the, the, the Paul's Mall is like. Uh, I don't know, six or seven months before he actually retired. Right. So we, I mean, we but, did gigs that summer. Right. We did gigs that summer. Absolutely. No, absolutely. But I mean, can you explain to the audience why he retired? Well, he was sick. 
he was getting treatments for he had ulcers and he he might have had at that point some uh cancer i forget what it was really um yeah he was he was he wasn't feeling well the medication he took for cancer or something was aggravating his ulcers and so he was you know he, he wasn't doing well physically that was one thing i mean I, I think that was the most important thing but um you know, we were uh, we did the gig at Central Park. Uh, I think that was might have been July or August. You know, um, and then uh, we were supposed to go to Atlanta, and the whole band on the plane. But Miles never got there. And then the uh, the pilot announces with the Miles Davis uh, band, "Please exit the plane." <laughs> that was and that was it. And then he went into uh, a, a retirement. And then a, a year later is when we all went back to uh, record with him uh, at CBS in New York, and we were all at his um, his house at Brownstone, or Limestone, I guess. Yeah. And uh, and I got there. I was the first one there, probably. He wanted me there early for some reason, so I got there early. And um, I guess he had during the day he had been drinking uh, like a six pack of Heineken or something. He lost his balance and fell down upstairs in the bathroom. And we were all downstairs. And we heard that we heard the fall, and then the, he came down and he had his his arm was cut. He cut it on this bathroom scale that came out of the wall, and uh, it was bleeding pretty badly. So he got taken over to uh, New York Hospital, and he came back and his arm was in the sling a few hours later. So we didn't go in and record that day, but we went in the next day, and Miles was supposed to overdub, but he never did. So, and that's what happened. Some of those um, tracks are available. You know, you can hear them in different places. Um, I just want to be clear. Uh, he retired in you, you, 75 is when you played with him, and then you came back in 76 and got in the studio. That's when he fell? Is that the chronology? Yeah, 76, yeah, 76 is when he went back in the studio. He had been in retirement for, I don't know, eight months or a year. I can't remember exactly. Could you talk a little bit? Uh, uh, I'm curious, about this is so important because what was he, cha- what was the band sonically channeling at that time? I find it fascinating because that dude was right on the, on the edge of, uh, I mean, he, you know, whatever you want to say, that word fusion is terrible, but it was this, this, he, he understood that, you know, the, the, the electronic guitars needed to be involved and he understood that there needed to be, you know, you know, he was, what was the, like, in those live contexts when you were playing Central Park, um, what was new at that point? Was it, the, was it the, the early synth on Cozy's guitar? What was going on that was avant-garde, so if that's the right word to use, in that, in that iteration of his band? Um, well, it, it, it was, actually, you know, I mean, the, the uh, the stuff at the uh, that we recorded '76 um, really sounded sounded great. I mean, there was a song that I guess came out of uh, uh, Pete and Reggie uh, knew it, so I guess one of them together they wrote it and and we recorded that, and that's like the most complete you know track I think of of that recording, and it's, it sounds great. Uh, we still I did it with Michael Henderson uh, live. I, I turned him on to it because he he didn't you know remember it just like a very long time ago right and uh and he loved it we did it in milan when we played there in 2012 wow and i've done it a couple times since then and it's a um you know it's a guitar oriented uh track and then 
I play mel I come in and play a little melody with it, and then it, and then that track features me playing solo for a while, which which is like it's it's, it's great, and the band is burning, and uh, <clears throat> you know that. We, then we did my track, which we was sight reading at the uh, studio, and Miles was going to overdub on that. But and I, Miles wrote a little section for it too. He wrote a little vamp that he inserted into it. Uh, but in any case, um, it, it, it never got released again. <laughs> Twice it was recorded for CBS, never released. Unbelievable! It was, so, so and and actually, it it was never released because Miles's horn never appears. He never played on it, right? Exactly. Wow! On yeah. He never overdubbed. He never overdubbed. He went into you know much longer retirement than he initially anticipated. I don't think he came back to like 1990 or something. That's right. It's it's such an interesting. And you were right there. What was the thing in the bathtub? You, you know, Miles was fucking around with our audio just now when you were talking. You cut out a little bit. What what was the thing he cut his arm on in the bath bathtub? He had a, he had a bathroom stairwell that folded up into the wall. Oh, a stairwell. And yeah, and and, and I I don't know. He fell down and cut his arm on that. You know, Sam, I just, can you talk a little, not just promoting what the, like, truthfully, the kind of, um, uh, what, what, when you and Michael and Patrick get together, can you talk a little bit about um, what will be different about this kind of live performance? It's, it's, I, I just crashed at Dr. Gleason's house for a couple of days over the summer and he was. I mean, this was in the works. It was the, we were, you know, it was it was not totally official yet. But he had mentioned that you guys were going to be uh, do, doing some collaboration together. And I just kind of wanted you to to talk a little bit about what people should be in store for because this is like, uh, I mean, your your collaborative relationship stretches back forty years. Well, yeah, it's going to be a little different take on it because it's all going to be Patrick synthesizing everything, you know, and. Um, He's, he's he's you know seems to have a real uh, gift for it. It's a knack. You know he's playing bass lines that remind me a lot of um, <clears throat> of Michael Henderson. Right. You know, but he's actually he's playing them. He's not. Um, it's not like it's all recorded and, and he's 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 triggering things and making things happen um, using his software program uh, that he's modified. He had modified, um, and um, it gives it kind of a. Um, There'll be like trance-like feeling, you know, trance the trance music that people can, you know, they could dance to it if they want. To. Right? No, there's an ambi- you know, there's an they- amb- ambient ambient trance quality to it. I dig. Yeah, and plus, you know, Michael Michael's going to bring a whole different take on drums than has been present before. Can you talk about what's I, this is very important? What 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 will be different fundamentally? <laughs> well, Michael's experience and what Michael's done. Um, and it's enormous talent on the drums. It's going to bring something different to the drumming aspect of things, you know, um, with this. He's, he, you know, not just a jazz drum, you know, he you know, has, has had leanings towards that, but but he encompasses a whole lot of other problems that you can hear in his, you know, with that and all the other bands he's had since then. Um, I, I think it's going to bring a... a a, a different feel to it, and plus the fact that this is a trio, you know, rather than a large band, is also um, have a, a different feel. And that this is more, more, uh, you know, synth-generated stuff than uh, than you know, guitar-oriented. 
which Miles' music became in, in, in that period, you know, at least the period I was in, having two guitars in the band. Um, so, the, so the so the timbre, um, you know, tonality is going to be um, is going to be uh, go off in a slightly different direction, I think. Um, you know, I, I've done, I, I did a band, you know, uh, some concerts with Michael Henderson, where we used, uh, you know, guitars and uh, and everything uh, recently. I, and this feels like it's going to be different. Well, also, I mean, can you talk like like Gleason's actually playing bass lines on his software? Is there anything that's going to be pre-programmed, or is it all going to be live? Oh, well, it's all live. You, you, um, I think you'd have to speak to Patrick about that, you know, to, to get a better uh, sense of that, um, because all I've heard is the uh, the tracks that he's generated and sent me. You know, I've, I've been playing along with him, practicing along with it, but um, you know, I haven't. We have. I haven't sent it out to anywhere. Just keeping it all a surprise. <laughs> well, I mean, this is and and, and and what kind of? I mean, because this is. And there's no. Are there going to be? Is Michael going to be singing at all, or does he anything? Are there any vocals at all? No, no, there won't be. No, no, there won't be any vocals. I was going to say, sure what, what is the? How did you decide, or what's the venue for this trance, uh, funk, <laughs> uh, jazz music? Where where are you going to be doing this thing at? Uh, well, this this concert is going to be at the Royal Room in Seattle. Um, it's the only thing we have booked at the moment. We're working on other stuff, but this is going to be our, uh, you know, opening shot. I and, dig. Uh, no, I know. I, what I what I'm trying to get at is like what what is I've never been to that space before. Is it is it, it what are the how how many people does it fit? Is it like? Uh, is it like, I looked it up. I haven't been there either, but it looks like it seats about 150. Is it like a wine and cheese kind? It's not like Jazz Alley. I mean, is I, it, I mean, is this a place where you know? People, I don't know. You don't. So you you don't. It, yeah. I, I haven't been there before, um, but I think it's a, you know uh, Wayne Horvitz's club, so it's going to be you know um, sort of a, a you know innovative uh, jazz probably or uh, you know more cutting edge kind of stuff. I don't you know I don't I don't know exactly who they have there. Right. This is my first exposure to it, you know. But what we're going to do is uh, Michael he might be playing some electronic. Uh, stuff as well and i'm using uh i'll be using my looper to do something and uh i'll be using uh you know i have effects that i use to play although i don't use it all the time but i've been using the the effects with i play soprano sax and alto flute over this music i like soprano because it it kind of is occupies the same um you know, zone is the uh, trumpet, the higher part. Right. No, I did. I did. I did. And 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 um, when you guys like, what do you guys feel about the art? You've been practicing along to you know some of the tracks that Dr. Gleason's been sending. But I mean, what do you guys feel about the R word rehearsal? I mean, how much rehearsing do you actually do? I find that the older guard is much more into. I mean, Miles and those cats were like that too. Where it was like, just get up and burn, you know. I mean, let's not rehearse this too much. I mean, how, how, how? That's probably it. That's it, probably what you just said. Is probably the way it's going to go. We have, we'll probably have a little rehearsal first, and then just play. You know, get anything ironed out that has to be. But um, you know, I don't just anticipate a lot. You know, I'm on the East Coast and they're on the West Coast. 
and you know this i'm going out there to, to for this initial hit see how it uh we'll see how things shape up and wh- when is it going to be know, when, when is it going to be yeah. by the way when yeah uh september 28th september 28th uh in seattle roughly six weeks i mean yeah. ba- can you talk about what you are what what is what are you anticipating is it just the uh potential of the unknown what what is the most exciting what is the thing that you that you sam morrison are most looking forward to aside from re you know re you know having continued collaborations with these guys that uh i mean you guys were marinating in that new york scene post miles retirement quite a bit too i mean that was a wild time out there i mean you guys have been doing a lot of work for a long time together but what is at this point in your career what is the most exciting thing about this gig yeah it's like getting out there to promote music that I was kind of like made to play, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, that, that's it. It's being, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, an awesome opportunity, uh, to go out and rediscover, uh, this music that has been around for 40 to 50 years. I mean, in the silent way, 68 to 69, um, you know, so it's a long time ago. And um, it's just rediscovering it in a new way, um, which is what, you know, Patrick is bringing to the table here. You know, he it's it's sort of his uh, inspiration that we're, you know, joining in on. And uh, for me, it's the opportunity to um, do what I've been doing, on, you know, uh, forever. I do it on, on live music, or I did it with Michael Henderson, you know, recently. And it went over. When we played uh, the... Uh, Ronnie Scott's in London, '09. Um, we played a midweek. We did three nights, and the first night there was maybe 20 seats open out of 300 or whatever. Right. And the next two nights it was sold out. You know, everybody they loved it. It's just that, um, you know, going out the size of the venues and the amount that they're willing to pay and the size of the bands. You know, it's hard to keep. It's hard to keep it together. You know what I mean? The, um, the, and, and this, yeah. hopefully, we're going to cross over more to electronica. Is what we is what we're going for, I think. Well, and that's that's just where rather I was, than just a straight jazz audience. Oh, I did. You know? no, I mean, that's really where our where our heads at as a society, anyway, is more electronica. Did you? Um, I've done three interviews with M. Tume. Can you talk about his his uh, his work as a Congo player? I'm looking here. Miles Davis Band, June 11th, 1975. At the bottom line. Miles Davis on trumpet and organ, Sam Morrison on soprano, tenor and flute, Pete Cozy on guitar and percussion, Reggie Lucas on guitar, Michael Henderson electric bass, Al Foster on drums, and M. Tume on congas. You talk about M. Tume? Yeah, M. Tume was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> He's an amazing conga player. You know, it was, it was a, you know a little bit. He wasn't uh, totally enamored with me, friendly, but. Uh, the way I got hired and everything, but but he was cool. He was cool. We was probably was, I always challenged him to a basketball game. He was gonna kick my butt, but we never it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dude, I would this, love to this have done is, that. I got to check this out. This is a burning hour and thirty minutes. I mean, this is unbelievable. So this is really yeah. quite remarkable stuff. I mean, so so let's be clear. It's in a silent way, and it's a new take on that music. Is that what I'm? Is that what I'm hearing from you? Yeah, you'll be doing um, in a silent way uh, and uh, peaceful, peaceful it is, and uh, and it's about time. I think, I think those are the three tracks that we're doing right now. Um, 
I'm going to do a little bit with a looper, and uh, we're going to, you know, see what else, what else develops as we get together. You should bring the Echoplex out, too. Well, the Echoplex, I, yeah, I've used the Echoplex before, but uh, I don't have one right now. I've been using something else. We'll see what they have, uh, you know, also when I get out there um, to see uh, how yeah, we'll be able to get anything we want. Absolutely. You know, and... Uh, and uh, what else? Uh, I, I use a, f- a few effects that I have now, and that I use with uh, Michael Henderson when we played. I've been using them for a few years. Um, but the uh, you know the main thing is that for me the, playing saxophone, you know, and not having Miles in the band is the the uh, the soprano occupies the. Uh, range that miles would have i know i totally i totally dig it i mean i really i really i'm just i wish michael henderson would come up and play bass for this gig you know and let gleason just play synths you know it would be fun i mean who knows someday but in the meantime uh yeah this is what it is i mean and you know what i'm telling you it's going to be inspiring no matter what i really hope that uh some sort of social media person is there doing some kind of Facebook live streaming. I, 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 it's just, I don't have the dough. Otherwise I'd literally come up and, and document the whole freaking night because people are going to get off on this no matter what. And especially in the, like, it's one thing to, you know, record it, put up some audio tracks in a few months, but like that, that immediacy of it, uh, live on video is just in this kind of format with, with the kind of cats that are putting it together, that's what it's about. So I hope that's being addressed because that's, that's also another way you, yeah. get, you get some gigs. Yeah. We just, we'll discuss that. I'm sure. <laughs> but no, I'll bring it up if nobody else does. Well, Sam, I mean, we, we've been, we've been cooking here for uh, 70 minutes, man. I had, a, it's been, wow. I, you know, let's, uh, let's reconnect after the show and I'm sure you'll have some, some tales to tell, but I, <laughs> I'm really, it was really an honor to connect with you, man. Okay, great. Uh, thanks for calling and inviting me. This is great. Yeah, man. And I'll get you a copy. Send, well, send me a good pic of you from back in the in the 72, 74 era, and then I'll put it up for the web post, and I'll get you a copy of this later today. I'll be transcribing some of these stories and blasting them out. So uh, I just, you know, I just uh, great. I got Charlie Musselwhite uh, talking to me about the mob and the early 60s, giving him uh, uh, orange, sun, <laughs> orange sunshine and dosing every, you know, and it just, I mean, I'm having a ball. So just, you know, you just continue to, you're continuing to add to this stuff, and uh, yeah, just keep it going, man. I'm looking forward to hearing about the, how the gig goes. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Later on, Sam. Oh my. Peace. <laughs> yeah, later. Peace. Just heard from Sam Morrison, decorated horn player, September 28th in Seattle. Him, Michael Shreve, and Patrick Gleason doing their own interpretation of "In a Silent Way." And we'll be back in a silent way, as always, on the Jake Feinberg Show tomorrow, or the next day, or the next day. Till then, peace. Influences your conscious life, your life here on Earth. And that.